Welcome to Beyond the 18, a podcast where we talk tactics and break down all the games. I am lifelong Arsenal supporter Patrick Duffy, and I'm joined as always by Coach Rodrigo Plaza. How are you doing this week, Rodrigo? I'm doing okay. I'm doing all right. I'm, uh, you know, looking forward to the holidays, looking forward to the uh, Boxing Day uh, avalanche of games. Um this this last weekend of games was uh, I don't know it was kind of weird um, definitely some some very solid uh, some some games that were uh, very dominant <laughs> for one team mm. or the other some one sided landslides uh, so which is interesting to see um, yeah but I'm I'm doing well how about you Duffy I'm doing great I'm doing great I'm so happy to be back on the airwaves getting in your ear listener i know uh some of you tuned in we did a live stream for the first time for the tottenham liverpool game last week which was a ton of fun thank you to the people who listened and contributed and i think on a similar note uh we were talking before the show and we would love to do some more interaction with our listener so if you have any questions or things that you'd like to hear us talk about in future episodes please reach out. You can find us on Twitter. You can also just email us directly at beyondthe18pod at gmail.com. That's beyondthe18pod at gmail.com. Um, and we're at Twitter at beyondthe18. So yeah, we would love to hear from you. We'd love to interact a little bit more with you, listener, get to know you, have a conversation, uh, and also hopefully be able to provide a little insight about uh, soccer, tactics, Premier League, whatever is is on your mind but we have a full table of games here to get to so i think we should hop right in um and looking at our first game from over the weekend chelsea three west ham zero uh, kind of an interesting game i i, I think the scoreline maybe looks a bit unfair i think realistically probably could have been more like a 2-0 game here um maybe even a 1-0 game i'll talk about maybe why in a minute um Sebastian Haller starting for West Ham in this game over Mikel Antonio I think that's a big loss continually for West Ham they've been able to put together some results uh but I looked at the numbers and they're about doing about the same with him and without him which I thought was interesting but they've scraped by in some games and in some games when he's played they've looked real dominant Interestingly for them in this game, they had zero shots on target, which I think is a first for any team um, in the Premier League this season. Chelsea got off to a real hot start playing their 4-3-3. Thiago Silva with a really nice goal in the 10th minute, a header from a corner coming in from Mason Mount. Poor marking from West Ham here. I think this was an example we've kind of talked about the blended man marking, zonal marking that people do on corners, and this was pure man marking. And they just didn't check the runner coming in from the top of the 18. So Tiago Silva, like you got to put a body on that guy. Uh, Chelsea now has eight goals from corners, which is the most of any team in the Premier League. So another reason, you know, on the training pitch, you probably want your boys to be practicing defending corners. West Ham maybe didn't show up there. After that, though, West Ham did have some chances, putting on some good pressure. Uh, Jared Bowen scores a goal in the 30th minute, disallowed. Um for a phantom foul on Tiago Silva. Like, I think Jared Bowen's foot, like, maybe grazed Tiago Silva. It was very close. 
Um, sniper in the trees. Tiago Silva went down easy. But then uh, Chelsea really kind of steps into the game, especially in the second half. Uh, in the 78th minute, Werner kind of scuffs his pass, and Tam- Tammy Abraham cuts in. It's a really nice run from Tammy. Kind of looks like he's offsides at first. But uh, Aaron Cresswell plays him on, and, and it's a simple finish. Tammy Abraham puts Chelsea up 2-0. And then not two minutes later, 80th minute, Christian Pulisic is just all over the pitch. Uh, Left side, right side, connecting for really nice passing. And then he just comes in, watch out, watch out, watch out, and RKO Fabianski right in the goal. He It, it was an absurd play. I It should have been a foul on Pulisic. Hilarious, just like absolutely bodies Fabianski. Ball bounces to Tammy, scores a very easy goal. Um, Chelsea 3-0. Good win for, for Fat Frank and the boys. They they needed it for sure. And yeah, you know, West Ham's a solid side. So being able to hold them to no shots, it was a very good defensive performance for, for Chelsea. Tiago Silva coming up huge for my fantasy team this weekend. Uh, could not have done it without you. But great job. Um, I'll take us into our next game. Uh, our next game was uh, Liverpool uh, 7 Crystal Palace zero. Uh, the scoreline here really kind of tells the story. Um, Liverpool thrashed Crystal Palace. Um, they were kind of elite in their finishing. Um, pretty much every chance they got, they put away. Um, and their goals were nice. I mean, their goals were clean. Um, and they started scoring right away. First goal of the game comes from Minamino. Um, and he scores in the third minute. Um, and he definitely seemed he, – he was very excited to have gotten that goal. You can tell he's been waiting to, to, to get the get, – get a goal for Liverpool, and um, he was very excited about that. But then that, that really starts the, the domino effect. Um, in the 35th minute, Sadio Mane hits a screamer. Firmino scores uh, about 10 minutes later, um, ending the half 3-0. Second half is just underway when Jordan Henderson scores in the 52nd minute. Firmino scores again in the 68th minute. And then there's two kind of late goals from Salah uh, in the 81st and 84th minute. Um, And uh, honestly, it it confirmed what we probably already know and expect from both teams. On the one hand, Crystal Palace really struggles to create scoring opportunities in this game. And I mean, of course, once you're down three, four, zero, I think obviously it takes a little bit out of the, out of the motivation to continue, but still they struggled. They had one that I remember very, very wide open opportunity to score a goal. Um, It was in like the, the first minute, I'm sorry, the first half around like the 35th minute. Um, There's a, ball that's put over the top uh i believe i'm trying to remember who who was the one who got that i believe it was jordan ayu who receives it and he brings it into the 18 and uh zaha is running in as a trailing run like right into the penalty spot and somehow jordan just over over overcompensates mm. when he cuts it back and he goes behind zaha and Zaha's like a good foot in front and he can't complete and he's clearly very frustrated by that um but you know by that time i mean it was yeah it was yeah it wouldn't have meant much in the in the in the long term but still that was a good opportunity that they had and then on the other hand i mean liverpool is just you know when they're on they're on yeah and they're dangerous from so many different 
situations are dangerous from long balls crossing into the box. They're dangerous from shots outside the 18. They're dangerous in, you know, cutting up into the 18 with small passes. I mean, and today, I mean, in that game, they just, everything that they tried was working. You know, it's one of those days. Um, you have those days where you try every, everything looks like perfect, but you're hitting the crossbar three, four times. Today, they were not hitting the crossbar. It was going in the back of the net. So um, really, I mean, dominant performance from them. Um, I don't think there's a whole lot more to say than, you know, I think it was pretty exciting for them to get that win going into, I think, a long break for them. They had a good like week and a half off. So yeah. I, I imagine their morale will be high coming into Boxing Day um, and kind of coming out of that. I mean, they're at the top of the table by, by like, what, three points? I think they might uh, be five points up now. Five points now? Yeah. And this was a great win to really seal that deal uh, yeah. and, you know, put pressure on the rest of the teams that weekend to, to perform. So good on them. Clinical is right. They had seven goals with only eight shots on target. Expected goal of just under three. So vastly outperforming um, what the stats would predict them to do. And Mo Salah didn't even start this game, which is crazy to me. Like, right? Yeah, he came in like fifty second minute, I think fifty third, something like that. Nuts. Uh, good for Liverpool. I'm I'm happy for you guys. Shout out Jack Smith, by the way. I just want to give my boy a shout out. He just gets so yeah. happy for his boys and <laughs> love you, Jackie. Um, next game on our list, Man City 1, Southampton 0. Not a ton that I had to say about this game. Raheem Sterling gets a goal in the 16th minute pretty early on, one of the first chances of the game. Ederson just pings this ball way over the top. And City win the second ball. Uh, like it, it, it went to a Southampton defender, but City get on the ball really quickly. Bernardo finds KDB, who makes this really nice run down the right-hand side into the box. Keyword phrase, excuse me, key phrase there, Pep Guardiola, KDB into the box. And he finds a great pass to Raheem Sterling, who's open, and smashes the goal in. And I think that was my big tactical game note for this game, was just KDB was playing a lot higher up. And I think part of that was that they had Bernardo Silva starting as their right winger, and he's not really a right winger. So it was kind of opening up space for Bernardo to shift back in centrally and KDB to shift up top right. And I thought it worked pretty well. Like City, after they score the goal, sit back a lot more and weren't really pressing up as high. So we didn't see it quite as much, but it was super effective in that play. Um, And then Danny Ings, he did almost score like in the 21st minute kind of right away. And that was my tactical note kind of on the other side is – you know, if he converted this ball, there's a deflected ball that came off of Walcott, a shot from Walcott, and Ings just can't convert it. You know, he converts that, it's different. And then in the 40th minute, Danny Ings gets hurt. Uh, it seems like he's re-aggravated his knee injury. And I also wonder, you know, if Danny Ings is on for 90 minutes, this game maybe finishes a little bit differently. I don't think Southampton played poorly. I don't think that like they they were doing what we expect them to do, trying to play down the middle, trying to link up on the wings at the very end with Gineppo and Walcott. But when you lose your target man, when you lose your best offensive weapon, you know, it's it's hard. And I think that threw off their rhythm in the second half. Um, But from this game, Southampton drops down to seventh and City is now in eighth place with a game in hand. Winning that game in hand, I think, would put them up to third. So uh, unfortunately... (laughs) City is creeping back into relevancy and uh, creeping up the table. So mm-hmm. I think we'll, we'll probably have to give them a little bit more lip service than either of us would like in the, the coming weeks. But honestly, I thought this was a good win for City and um, 
saw some good tactical change from Pep that you and I have both been really uh, beating the drum on, hammering, especially you've been saying, put KDB up, like move him up. He needs to get involved. Yeah, I mean, I... I definitely, I definitely am. I'm always intrigued to see what the long term, if the if it's if it's easy to see one, what the long term plan will be for City, um, because they've definitely struggled in this first, uh, this first part of the season, and I'm curious, you know, what adjustments he's trying to make um, to 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 keep, to, I mean, both to climb, but then also to keep themselves up there and not have these kind of random losses or ties to teams that you know they should probably be expected to win right um anyways but moving moving to our next game Aston Villa West Brom Aston Villa three West Brom zero um West West Brom has uh their new coach Big Sam at the helm so this was his first game uh overseeing uh the baggies uh but Aston Villa really kind of dominate this game. What's very unfortunate is that uh, in the first half, about halfway through, I believe it was the 36th minute, um, Jake Livermore is given a red card on on West Brom. It was a pretty bad tackle. Um, he Oof, he makes yeah. a sliding tackle on Jack Grealish near the sideline, and the w- you can tell by the way that he extends his leg, especially he kind of fully extends it late. He he's really going in, studs up. He's his foot doesn't even touch the ground. I mean, he, he essentially just studs up into Grealish. He goes down. Grealish, you know, makes the most of it. But, I mean, at the same time, it was a pretty pretty bad foul. And, you know, had he been perhaps, like, a little bit more focused on playing the ball, um, he, he could have gotten very hurt. So yeah. that red card definitely puts them in a tough place for the rest of the game. Um, that said, they were down 1-0 at that point anyways, which I think was a part of the, probably the frustration that led to the red card. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the first goal is a – Actually, a, a very nice goal for uh, Anwar El Ghazi. He um, meets this ball. Bertrand Traore gets the ball on the right hand side, cuts into his left, his favorite foot, puts it into the back of the six, and uh, El Ghazi is just there to kind of make contact and, and, and change the direction to keep it in at the back post. Um, very, very well done. I think the the biggest challenge um, in this game was that. West Brom just really struggled to get to the attacking third. Um, they would get the ball, and once they tried to move up the field, they could get as far as you know halfway or the second third of the field. But when it got into getting to the final third, they they really struggled. I wanted to ask you a quick question of rewinding to that goal. Traore puts that ball into El Ghazi, and mm-hmm. when I was watching it, I was thinking about the defender, and I've been that defender before. Like the defender yeah. is he he's in between El Ghazi and the goal. But El Ghazi mm-hmm. kind of dummies him a little bit and gets gets a step on him for the run in, so the defender is is late getting there. Yeah. So part of me, my my initial reaction was like, wait, should the defender be behind him on the wrong side of the goal so he can see where the runner is gonna go? Or do you always oh. want to be on the inside of him? I was like, I gotta ask Rodrigo. Yeah, I mean, in in a way it's a matter of it's a matter of context and 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 your comfort, but I mean, in general, you'd want to be probably in between him and the ball um, because you're just you're going to be able to establish. Because the idea would be that if you're between the cross where the cross is coming from and the player who's going to receive it, um, you should pretty much have the advantage uh, in the air. Um, it does make it harder to see the player. That's also a lot of times why I like to establish contact with the player. Like mm. I like to make sure that I'm touching the player. Um, so I kind of know where they are in general, um, but it's a difficult thing. To, it's a difficult. It's definitely a difficult situation. And when I look at that, 
play, I think the biggest vulnerability was not even really the defender in the back post. For me, it was the pressure on the ball. Um, Triori has the ball on his right foot. Um, and if you're going out to put pressure there, which was, an, I, first of all, I don't think the pressure got there soon enough. But second, you should be probably trying to take him outside on his right. Um, yeah. Because on the one hand, that's his less, that's his less favorite, less favorite foot. But on the other hand, likely you're going to buy yourself more time. You're going to buy everybody in the demons more time to kind of adjust and be very set for the cross. Um, because, you know, as the ball goes deeper down that sideline, everyone's going to essentially be in line, like on the six. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah. You let that ball come inside and they get the cross earlier. Defense might have to adjust. There's going to be more space behind them. It just makes everybody's job harder. So you kind of want to funnel them outside, try to slow that down so everybody can be arranged. But it's a difficult situation either way. I think the biggest thing is that if you're behind that player, even though you can see them and see the ball, if you try to go to the ball and you hit the player, you're putting yourself in a kind of rough situation. Yeah, to, yeah. To I was, that's exactly there. what I was thinking about. Yeah, it's definitely the most difficult. And and if, it, if it's a good four, a smart forward, ideally they would they would use their body to make sure that any any attempt at the ball was going to hit them first, right? right. So that would right. That would be ideal for them, but you know, I, I, I can see it. I can see it working out okay. Um, just depends on the situation. There, though, I, I don't think you would have had time to do that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you know, the the rest of the game is like I said, it's kind of a tough situation for West Brom. Um, Ollie Watkins scores a goal. It's a beautiful goal in the seventy second minute. It's called back by VAR. Really, really close again. Um, didn't look even when I saw the replay that he was offsides, but it seems that his arm and the arm of the other defender were not quite in line and called back. And then there's two kind of late goals in the 84th and 88th minute. So despite being a man down, um, you know, the scoreline remained pretty close most of the game. But definitely, if you watch it, Asenville looks the dominant uh, force. Bert, uh, Bertrand Traore's goal, he has an assist earlier, but his goal in the 84th minute is actually really pretty. Clean. Um, very clean. He uh, He's dribbling I- into space, and then he, he kind of cuts with his left to, to his left side, and it he takes two touches, one with the outside of his left and then the next with the inside of his left, and just essentially passes it very hard and on the ground to the left side. But the way that he does it is just so quick. It's really, really nice to see. And then finally, there's a El Ghazi penalty in the 88th minute um, to get Jack Grealish gets fouled. Go figure in the 18. Uh, and uh, and they seal it up 3-0. So, I mean, good good performance by Aston Villa. West Brom definitely struggling in buildup, but also we're a man down. Got to handle You got to find a way to keep some more discipline. You can't be going down a man like, like that, you know, out of pure frustration um, so early in the game. Yeah, I think when I was watching this game, the thing that I wrote down, and this is word is abused by pundits, but KG, I know it's it's three nil and Aston Villa, you know, gets a big win, but those last two goals came kind of late in the game, and there were so many fouls in the middle of this game. Uh, I think West Brom had fourteen fouls and only one shot all game. So KG, and I think we'll see a lot of KG games with Big Sam. Um, he's a listener, if you're new to the Prem or you're, yeah, new to the Prem particularly, Sam Allardyce is like a ringer who's brought in to keep teams from being relegated. Um, he has, on his resume, he saved Sunderland, Newcastle, Blackburn, Ch- Crystal Palace, and sort of Everton, all from relegation um, in his time managing there. And he also got West Ham and Bolton promoted when he was managing there. So he's like an expert at 
working with clubs that are in trouble. And West Brom is a club that is in trouble. So, yeah. Um, good luck to you, Big Sam. <laughs> Our next game on the list is Burnley Wolves. Burnley 2, Wolves 1. Uh, my my big note at the, up at the top is we got to see uh, Otisawi play for Wolverhampton Wanderers, an American, a rare American on Wolves. On what is like the national the national team of Portugal? Portugal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he uh, yeah he he got the start in central midfield. Um, I thought he he started pretty brightly, um, but then really faded out in this game. He really struggled to get involved. My main thing with him is he just was looking to go to ground really too easily kind of throughout. He won one good foul earlier in a good position, and then it basically became his kind of go-to move. It would be like, you know, you're playing against Burnley. They're going to be physical against you, but, but you, can't, you, you can't be diving every single time. Um, Wolves really early on in this game were conceding a lot of the ball and a lot of space to Burnley. And then as the game kind of goes on, they tried to possess more and more and um, put more and more uh, numbers into the attack. Chris Wood for Burnley has a really close chance in the 15th minute. Um, and I think then Wolf started like around the 20, 30 minute mark in, in that space. Wolf started making a lot of mistakes with the ball and Burnley just really poised and ready to win the ball in transition and to go on the attack. And they were doing that pretty successfully. The first goal for Burnley um, comes off of Nelson Semedo makes this big run uh, for for Wolves. It was a really nice run um, kind of going into an attack. But the ball is lost in transition and Wolves come, uh, you know, losing the ball and Burnley's now coming up on the attack. The thing is when Semedo pushes up that high, the whole right flank then gets exposed and someone needs to fill into that space for Wolves. The analysts were saying uh, on NBC, they were saying Potence probably should have been that guy, but he doesn't. So the right flank is wide open. Burnley pushes down the left so much space and time, and they get across into Ashley Barnes, and he gets a really nice goal, scores a very nice goal for for Burnley to put them up 1-0. And Chris Wood scores the second goal for Burnley. It's a ball just bouncing around after a header comes in from across. Um, It's kind of like the... The classic, I don't know, yeah, classic Burnley goal, a set piece, like a bunch of big lads, like, you know, elbowing around and one of them heads it in with his big old dome. Um, the, the big lads, send in the big lads. Send in the big lads. And Chris Wood and Ashley Barnes are both big lads. Then I felt bad for him. This kid Benson comes in for Burnley as a sub and basically immediately he fouls Fabio Silva like he gets on and he's just like, yo, I'm, I'm, I'm killing this man. He fouls him and he gives Wolves a penalty in the 89th minute. Fabio Silva scores the penalty, his first goal for Wolves. And then Wolves are frantically trying to equalize and they had chances in extra time. Um, Saiz had a really close chance in extra time. But the final whistle blows and Burnley wins this game 2-1. You could really tell the Burnley players left it out on the field there were some audible like screams of you know excitement and, and joy, and it's Brexit FC. I don't love Burnley. They shit house results against Arsenal all the time, but I will <laughs> say to see like a small club pull out a result and just see the boys like really fired up like that. I was like, 
you know, good good for them because this game takes them out of the relegation zone. It's a really big result, and yeah, you could tell it meant something to the players. So good for Burnley yeah. Wolves. Huge w for them. I I I don't know. I really this team feels like bipolar sometimes. It doesn't really seem like like we we keep saying this, but it just doesn't really seem like there's a clear identity. There's lots of talent on that pitch, but I don't. I'm not necessarily sold on what Nuno is doing, whereas in the past I really have been. And confusing team. Yeah, totally agree. It continues to be a struggle to see what they think their comparative advantage is, um, and with what they're trying to lean on to say, like this is the like you said identity. Like this is what we do. This is how we score. This is how we dominate a game. You know, and then kind of building out from there. It seems like hard to identify what the edges of that of that knife um even though we feel like there's probably a good number of edges that they could try to sharpen um mm. it's a little bit it seems to be a little bit of a lost in translation at least from my perspective on the outside well with that listener i think we are going to take a quick break and when we come back we are going to talk manchester united leads All right, welcome back, listener. We are going to talk the rivalry of the roses. They kept <laughs> saying that on NBC. Rodrigo and I were talking about this off air. It's so annoying. It's like, who who cares? We don't care <laughs> about cares? the red and the white rose. Some stupid Anglo traditions. Like, play some soccer. Like, <laughs> shut up and dribble. That's what I want right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it was a, it was an interesting bit of history that seemed very important to our announcers this game. Um, but Manchester United, uh, the Red Roses, if you will, uh, thrashed the White Roses six to two. Um, the first half was was interesting. Uh, Leeds Leeds struggles in this game um, very centrally. It seems that they have a lot of weakness, like because they're playing this four-one-four-one. And to give you context, uh, Manchester United is playing a four-two-three-one um, with McTominay and Fred kind of as their holding mids, and then uh, and then Bruno in the middle, Rashford on the left, and Dan James on the right, um, with with of course Martial up top. Um, they they really got overpowered. In the middle of the field, despite playing four one four one, where you would think that you know your CDM, who's kind of holding right in front of your two central defenders, should be kind of that that central three should be a very tight block that's hard to break through. That area was getting overrun very very frequently. Um, Rashford, Martial, both making runs in there. Um, but in the beginning of the game, in literally the first two minutes of the game, McTominay uh, scores uh, scores a goal. Um, he he does this a, a several times. He scores there and then scores a minute later in the third minute. Um, but he's making through through runs like into that central space. Um, and there seemed to be something like a lack of communication or understanding of roles. Um, Luke Ayling is playing as a central defender in this game, which is not necessarily his most comfortable position. He's usually playing on the outside. So I imagine that's a part of it. But that said, Calvin Phillips also seems to get dragged out of that central spot to kind of go ball chasing on, yeah. on several occasions. And neither of neither of them made that central space very secure. And that was a really big, really big down 
fall for them. So, like I said, McTominay scores uh, in the second minute. Um, Leeds essentially lose the ball when, when they're being pressed, and it's a 3v3. And then Bruno lays off this ball to McTominay, who just slots it bottom right. Um, again, there's, not a, there's really not a lot of pressure put on him. They're missing that pressure, that central player. A minute later, there's a throw-in from the left-hand side. Martial receives it. McTominay runs through. It's kind of laid off to him on the run. He receives it on his right foot and then hits it with his left. Very well done to the bottom right-hand side. But again, there seems to be just an open lane of traffic going through the middle there. Um, in the seventh minute, it was kind of a quick game, right? It was, fireworks are going off very quickly. Um, Bamford ha- essentially just misses a sitter a very a very easy shot yeah rodrigo puts a through ball um and he gets it there and it, it seems like one of those kind of like put it hard on the ground right with a little bit of bend on it nice right bumper work and you got a goal and he just forgets to hit the finesse on it and it just hits it like just wide it doesn't look like a miss hit um but you know very very open opportunity for them um in the 20th minute Bruno Fernandez scores the goal. Uh, Rodrigo loses the ball, and there's like a counterattack. And then Fred dribbles the ball forward and kind of puts this split ball to Martial, but the defender with Martial on the 18 kind of gets a, a touch on it. And so it kind of drops back into the space, and Bruno's there, and he just rips it bottom left. Um, nice goal. That puts them up 3-0. Very nice. Um, Lindelof scores the fourth goal in the 36th minute. It's a corner from the left-hand side with Shaw. And Martial gets a very nice flick onto the ball that comes across the six. And there's really a vacuum there. There's really not a lot of people there. Lindelof's running in. Nobody really, or the mark is pretty late, and he just has an easy tap in at the back of the six. Um, so they're up 4-0. 41st minute, Liam Cooper, uh, who I believe is the other central defender uh, for, uh, for, for Leeds in this game, mm-hmm. gets a goal to put them back, put them back up one. It's a corner from like the left side, and Liam just he gets a nice header on the ball, kind of center of the 18, puts it opposite side, and then you know the half ends 4-1. So, you know, blood is drawn early and 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 Manchester United continues to go back to the well um to to score more goals in the central space. I think Leeds definitely struggles. Um and there's, I think, something to do there with Luke Ayling playing that position, but also a problem with Calvin Phillips. Second half starts, and I think it's fairly telling. Calvin Phillips and uh, and Click, who's the center midfielder, one of the other center midfielders in front of him, are both subbed off. Um, yep. And I think essentially to try to patch up that central space, I don't think that he's planning on subbing out Luke Ayling. I think that's kind of his all he can all he has for the central defender position. So he tries to seal up the middle. Um, and to a certain extent, maybe that makes things a little bit better. But that said, that said, I think the the boat had already kind of sailed on the game. Um, Martial misses a sitter in the 47th minute. Dan James in the 66th minute scores a goal. Uh, I believe it's his first goal for Manchester United. Uh, at least they said something about it's it. It's his I first don't goal for United since October 2019, and I think it was also this year. is his first yeah. game Premier League game of the year for him. That makes sense. That makes sense. Um, th- this was a this was a a, a nice build up. Um, they have the, they just build up through Aaron Juan Basaka. Uh, McTominay kind of dribbles centrally and then kind of leads it out to the left hand side. He passes uh, to James at the top of the eighteen. But this was just an absolutely horrendous mistake by Luke Ayling. I, I don't know what he was doing because he essentially is you know 
if we can think of it as three dots on a line, uh, the ball is played from McTominay to Dan James, and uh, Luke Ayling is directly behind him in the direction of this pass. So they're like a perfect line. And yet, when you watch the replay, and I watched it a few times because I was so confused, Luke Ayling extends his foot as if he's going to receive the ball, despite the fact that there's a guy like clearly in front of like right there. And then because he's extended his foot, he's going a kind of out away from his own goal. And Daniel James just turns and there's just, a, there's just open, open space. He just dribbles into the 18 and finishes. I mean, it was just like a really poor, I don't, I didn't understand it at all. I don't know. He was confused about something, but very, very poor positioning. That leads to the 5-1. And then uh, Bruno gets a, is able to take a PK in the 70th minute to put them up 6-1. Um, Martial's taken down. Pretty bad defending. It's just unnecessary. Just gets all body, no ball. Uh, Martial misses another sitter in the 72nd minute. Um, <laughs> and then in the 73rd minute, Stuart Dallas, one of their, another one of their defenders, scores a goal. Um, he just hits this beautiful like upper 90 shot upper 90 degrees like in the right hand side just from outside the 18 you know beyond the 18 if you will mm. um and and puts them up so i mean there were some pretty cool goals in this game um leads definitely struggles the one thing that i want to say about manchester united uh, i think to, to even to praise them really is they're playing a lot faster yeah in transition yeah um it reminds me of like the earlier games when they would win the ball and there wasn't always that sense of urgency to attack. They would kind of hold the ball in the buildup um, and then kind of walk it up and then have maintain a lot of possession high. In this game, they are much faster to transition from we got the ball to like we need to score. And I think that's part of the reason why you see goals coming from folks like McTominay because when they won the ball on the press – McTominay was the closest player to make the run and he was doing it. There was no like, oh, you know, we're going to wait for somebody else to do that or we're going to like, you know, bring it back and like, you know, set up. It was like, we got to go forward. Um, and there was a lot of that. So if they continue to play that way, I think regardless of what formation they have, whether it's a box or a diamond or, a, you know, or this 4-2-3-1, that's really going to benefit them because they have very fast players. And if they can kind of quickly build and get into the space that's left behind, um, they're gonna they're gonna be more effective. So, I think it was a good game for them, um, despite the the definite like uh, underperformance of some of the players on Leeds. Yeah, I agree. I thought Fred was again really good in this game in doing exactly what you're talking about in winning the ball and springing the the transition attack. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, he's he's been really key to their success and is not necessarily a player that will get a lot of attention. I know I've talked about him on here before, but. I thought, again, he was really solid in this game. Uh, and it's interesting because t- today uh, United played against Everton in the uh, Carabao Cup. And uh, in that game, they really were pressing super high. Like the whole first half, Manchester United is just pressing like really intensely and really high up. And it made for a few chances early, but it honestly, it didn't really seem to suit them. And in this game, it felt like they conceded a little more space we're looking to win the transition and being really quick on it. And I thought, I think it's a better look for United to play like they did against Leeds. Um, on the Leeds side, I, I really hope that Leeds stays around and Bielsa gets some financial backing to bring in some more players because I, when they're on, they're great. But I think that there's just some lack of quality in the squad 
at, at the moment. And I think, you know, he gets some better players in there. I, I really think that they could develop into being a very fun team to watch week in and week out. I think uh, Martial, uh, Timo Werner, especially this weekend, and Patrick Bamford could all have a competition to see who can miss, like, the easiest shot. And I, have, I, couldn't, I couldn't pick the winner out of the three of them. It's insane. Like, the chances that those yeah. three guys below is ridiculous. Yeah. It, it, I mean, Martial added a lot of value in this game, I think, in some of the play and some of his off-the-ball play and also some of the passes he made. But he missed single-handedly probably like three, three goals. Not that it mattered in this situation, but still, I mean, you know, at least I would say at least he should be scoring at least one goal in this game. You know, can't count on everybody score every every time they get an opportunity. You know, not everybody's Liverpool, uh, but uh, but at the same time, I think I think that's definitely a something something to be thinking about moving forward. Keep it in the tickler. Uh, next game we're going to be talking about, listener Newcastle one, Fulham one. Um, Fulham comes out playing uh, their four two three one. Mitrovic back in the squad. He's playing up top as the solo one. Uh, a little bit of change. Um, and Fulham just dominates the chances in the first half, dominates possession in the first half. It really seems like Fulham's strategy is to get the ball out wide and to cross in to Lookman or to uh, Mitrovic to get a header. Um, Mario Lamina had another really good game. He's a player who I, I think you flagged to me uh, a couple weeks ago, and now I've been like mm-hmm. really trying to watch him closely. In the 32nd minute, he puts this sensational ball over the top to De Cordova Reed. It's hanging up there for so long, and you can just tell that De Cordova Reed overthinks it. Like it comes down to his foot, <laughs> and he hits it so poorly. And it's and like he knows, like the announcer knew right away. Like you just knew. It's like oh, like if he connects that, that's like a get out of your seat. You're so fired up, kind of goal. But he just he mishits it. Um, but then Fulham score, or yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just gonna say I had the I had a I had a goalkeeper. I had a friend who was a goalkeeper a long time ago, and um, he used to have this expression. He'd say, "God, God, help me with the easy ones," because what always happened, he would have these amazing saves. You know, like reaction save, like blocking it up or ninety, and then someone would pass him the ball backwards, and he would just like it would go through his legs or it'd be rolling into the box. But it seems like it's always the easy ones where you have all this time to think. Where you make the biggest mistakes when it's like, oh, it's under pressure. Like you just got to do it. You pull something out. But I always think of that when I say, God help me with the easy ones. <laughs> That's like, uh, yeah, a conversation I had with a good friend once. We were talking about the craze in the world of mindfulness, and we were just mm-hmm. like, no, we don't need mindfulness. We need more mindlessness. We need to take ourselves <laughs> out of thinking, remove ourselves from take the equation, out of the equation. Yeah. Got to get out of the equation, of course. Fulham puts himself back in the equation, though, in the 42nd minute with a big goal. There's a corner kick, and Ada Badayo gets a head on the ball, heads it down. This is, like, one of the funniest goals I've ever seen in my life. It just comes (laughs) directly off Matt Ritchie's face. Such an unfortunate goal. It's an own goal. And it it looks so painful, and it also went in, and, like— He's guarding the back post where he should probably be, and the ball just kind of awkwardly bounces, and he sort of gets caught up in his own legs, and it just comes right off his right off the kisser, right in the goal. So unfortunate, but Fulham well deserved to be up one zero. Um, Newcastle sitting back the whole game looking for a mistake, and then they find it. Um, 
they they win the ball off a full mistake in the second half. Almiron makes this really nice run through the middle of the field in a counter and transition and finds Callum Wilson in the box. The Fulham defender Anderson fouls Callum Wilson. It's reviewed. It goes to VAR. It's ruled a pen. And Anderson is given the red card. Um, I This was a really soft call. The announcers seemed pretty confident on it being a penalty. One, I thought that the contact was initiated outside the box. And two, I, I it, it was really incidental. To be fair, though, there's no reason that Anderson, Anderson shouldn't have even touched him. Like, it, Wilson was always looking to go to ground, and it, it, it was a mistake. Um, but Callum Wilson scores. He now has eight goals for Newcastle this season. There are only seven players in the Premier League who have scored more goals than Callum Wilson. Um, and, yeah, Newcastle kind of do what they do. I thought Fulham played well. It really was just an individual mistake that cost them. But Scott Parker has been playing pretty well. And uh, now Fulham are only two points off of Brighton in 17th and getting out of relegation. Um, one stat for you, Rodrigo, because we've been talking a lot about possession. Newcastle have not had most possession in a single game that they have played this season. Every single game that they've played, they've had less possession than the other team. And I think they've been hovering around 10th, 11th place. So they kind of feel like the control group for, like, <laughs> if you don't possess the ball, what yeah. happens? If you don't possess the ball at all, <laughs> if you only win and score in transition, what happens? Yeah, that's that's hilarious. I mean, honestly, they're uh, they're my heroes. Keep it up. <laughs> Who needs to have more possession? Just Just do what you can with the scraps. Beautiful. Um, well, that brings us to our next game, and this was a this was a, honestly I was excited to get this game underway. Um, it's Leicester Tottenham, Leicester two, Tottenham zero. Um, this game I was I was really curious to see what would happen, mostly because the way I think of it is both of these teams uh, kind of heavily rely on the counterattack, um, and so you you know you, both teams can't really counterattack right because it requires one team to have the ball in your half which is kind of the antithesis of the counter so i was curious to see how things would play out um you know it it, it, it has to be expected what i saw was both teams playing very quickly in transition from the very beginning of the game um and i tended to think that they were more dangerous in transition than they were when they had the ball possessing in the final third um so and a lot of it was like, yeah, like we have the ball up here, but I was kind of always, con- you know, I was thinking, okay, well, when's the when's the other attack going to spring out of this, and you know, what are we going to get from that? Um, now, I wanted to one thing I'll just draw your attention to is if you watch this game, Leicester kind of comes out at least in the first half is kind of the the more possessor heavy team. So Tottenham is kind of playing a little bit more, getting more opportunities to play from deep. Um, but Leicester does a really good job, I thought of kind of when they possess the ball they all have their defensive line possess the ball like around the midfield line and then kind of work backwards and kind of draw spurs out right and that will that naturally is going to create one of two situations either it's going to create a situation where there's space behind tottenham or they're going to spread out, right? Because the, the line's being brought out and the uh, the defensive line is staying where it is. There's more space in the middle. What tends to happen uh, is that there tends to just cre- they tend to just create more more space in the middle um, by maintaining the ball that way. And it 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 really does 
build well because they draw out and then they kind of create what you might think of as kind of like a pseudo counterattack where they very quickly try to exploit that space in the middle and they have some good opportunities that come out of that buildup. Um, but uh, I think one other big piece that could have been the deciding factor in this first half was there were a lot of set pieces. There were a lot of fouls kind of outside the 18 that could yeah. have been scoring opportunities. Unfortunately, neither team is able to capitalize them on the, on any of them. Um, and then in the two minutes of injury time on the first half, so the 47th minute, I guess, if you want to think of it that way, um, Aria takes down Fafana in the corner of the 18. Um, and it's very close to the line, but it, it definitely looks in. And the tackle is just terrible. I mean, it's just a terrible tackle. Like, not terrible as in ferocious, like, kill you, break your leg, you know, career ending, but terrible in the sense that like, there's, the technique is poor. The context that you're doing it is terrible because it's inside the box. And it, it was the, – the timing was also bad. Um, he essentially leans into – the back of Fofana with his with his shoulder, like the side of his body, and the ball is on the other side of the entire interaction. Um, it's like you know, clearly being shielded. Um, so he essentially just tackles this dude, uh, <laughs> and and they call the PK and the V. I mean, there's nothing there's nothing to review. I mean, it's it's. I mean, they review it for the sake of where it is. But it's confirmed to be inside the 18, so it's a pen. It's a PK. Yeah. I mean, and I, I still have no idea why Aria chose to engage in that situation like that at all. I mean, like we said, it was on the edge of the 18, which is all the more reason not only to not engage like that, but to try to just shield the ball out out wide. No need to try to tackle the ball when somebody so clearly has possession of it and is shielding it from you. Um, and a really poor tackle, but. Uh, you know, Vardy steps up, hits it right down the middle, um, and they go up 1-0. So really, really unfortunate. I cannot imagine how furious, you know, Mourinho was at halftime about that. I mean, that was just like, especially to be seconds away from, from half and to go down 1-0. Um, second half comes, and they're going to swap Gareth Bale from Dombele. Um, and, you know, Spurs kind of have a lot more possession because they kind of need to get the ball, they need to get a goal back, um, and then you know from there, Leicester looks pretty pretty comfortable. And then kind of funny if you think about it, but in the forty seventh minute, right? Because they start back at forty five after the injury time, uh, Madison scores a goal, but it's called back by VAR. Um, so Spurs uh, lose the ball in midfield, and Leicester are like kind of holding their back line for a couple passes. But Spurs are like kind of transitioning back, but they kind of maintain their defensive line about like you know a quarter of the way up the field. So there's a lot of space behind. And then Madison is right there, pinned on the back line. Dier is up to make him offsides, but Alderweireld and Aurier are both sitting a little behind that. And the ball's played over the top, and he brings it down with one touch and puts it in the back of the net with the next. Um, it was a very, very pretty goal. And it's called out back for for being offsides, but again, you know, very negligible degree of offsides. I think Jay, uh, Madison, after the game, he tweeted out that he was offsides by uh, one of his armpit hairs. Is the way that he phrased it on Twitter, <laughs> which I love that. Yeah, it, yeah, it was it was it was one of the finer uh, you know margins of error there, uh, if if really any at all. I don't know how they get the it seems that they're manually drawing these lines anyways every time. Like I'm watching somebody like draw it in. And I'm like, what what? <laughs> how, 
Why does that work? Like, I don't know. Like, can't we, I mean, at least have like some kind of, I don't know. I, it's, it's bizarre to me. But regardless, they call that ball back, that goal back. Um, so maybe in a way the PK from the RA foul, you know, this is just uh, making up for the difference there. Mm. Um, Lucas Mora comes on for Lacelso, who comes off injured kind of shortly after that. And then uh, in the 59th minute, Vardy gets a second goal. Um, Spurs are playing, you know, possession kind of 30 yards out. Lucas Mora loses the ball. Lester move out right. Mark Albrighton kind of brings the ball up the field on the right-hand side and then sends this 40-yard cross to, like, the back of the six, and Vardy's there, and he heads it off of Alderweireld. So he kind of headers it almost kind of back across the goal. But I, chances are it would have been just wide. It would have gone, like, across the face. But Alderweireld is there kind of making that run and, you know, try not really any time to react. Hits hits his thigh and just like goes into the goal. Pretty depressing, honestly. Mm. Um, so both the goals kind of fluky. Um, and you know, like you, I think you said this earlier. Like it was a little bit of a cagey game. Um, just both of them clearly wanted to do the same thing. Um, and 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 once the early goal was scored, then it became you know, well, now someone has to take chances. So uh, one other piece I'll just mention is Sun misses a shot at the back post in the 70th minute. That was just a sitter as well. Um, you know, it would have only put them back up one, but but he misses that. So I think overall, like I don't, I think I put a heavy hand on either team for playing poorly in this game. Some yeah. unfortunate mistakes. I think it was pretty even, you know, Lester just kind of comes out on top today, but you know, play this game 10 times, 10 times. And, you know, I think it's probably split 50, 50 based on their performance. Like I'll say this, I didn't see a lot from Gareth Bale. Um, didn't think he made much of an impact uh, in the second half, but you know, I don't, I'm not like I said. I don't know that either, either team was playing exactly, or I don't know that Tottenham had the opportunity to play the game that they really wanted to after they went down one zero in the first half. Uh, yeah, a couple of players that I was thinking about in this game. Mark Albrighton had a really great game for Leicester, and I, I, I don't know a whole bunch about him. He's not a player I'm super familiar with, but I think he's kind of putting together some, some good moments and. Yeah, his his ball into Vardy was that was a, a great ball, like trouble for any central defender. Um, on the Spurs side, I think Regulon, Gareth Bale, and Lo Celso were all players I was thinking about. Lo Celso getting hurt. I, I don't know the status of his injury. I don't think Spurs have said anything about it as of now. So him being out would be a huge loss. He's been excellent for them all season. Um, Regulon intrigues me like I want to watch him more I think he's great going forward in this game I noticed though he doesn't close down the space on crosses nearly enough and uh I I think that that's been that's been a problem in some games when you play against teams that are trying to put the ball in the box from the wing you're you're like you were talking about your defender either needs to force him out wide or step in and close the space and I, I felt like he was giving up too much of that and Gareth Bale I think Gareth Bale is not, he doesn't seem like he has the pace anymore to just destroy people on the wing. I kind of feel like Gareth Bale is really talented and can play in the middle of the field a little bit more. And I would like to see him a little bit higher up and a little bit more central. And Mm -hmm. um, actually in the league cup today against Stoke, that's more how it seemed Gareth Bale was playing and and he scored a nice goal and he was more involved. So I I, kind of wonder if we'll see that more from Mourinho moving forward. Agreed. I, I had the same feeling that he would be better suited for a more central role where he could be involved in play more frequently without having to, 
you know, be making large runs into space or, you know, um, having to, you know, check into the ball. Like, I, I think that that would make more sense. In my mind, that's it. I'm not as familiar with Gareth Bale. I, I haven't watched him play a lot. So, you know, I could be dead wrong. But, um, but, but I, that was my sense watching just this, this, this individual game. Uh, talking about our next game, we're getting into Depression Corner. That's what we'll call this, <laughs> where we talk Sheffield and Arsenal. Best for last, baby. <laughs> Sheffield won, Brighton won. Uh, a couple of lineup notes for both teams before going to the breakdown. Uh, Rian Brewster started for Sheffield in this game. Um, still kind of waiting to see him light it up to have that moment uh, for them. Sander Berg is also out for Sheffield, for it looks like, for three months with an injury. That's devastating for him as a player and for Sheffield. He's such an important player for them. On the Brighton side of the ball, Adam Lallana playing a much deeper role in the midfield, acting more as a creative player, playing like not as a, as a kind of like a, a striker up top or, or like a right winger. He's playing f- much further back in this game, and I thought actually that position – Suited him well in the way that Brighton was playing. Um, add Neil Maupay to the list of Bamford, uh, <laughs> yeah. Martial, missing, and Missing Werner. Sitters Club. The yeah. Missing Sitters Club. That and the C's. Maupay missed two chances that he should have converted in the first half that probably would have won this game for, for Brighton. Um, both of them were saved by really last-ditch heroic efforts by Blades defenders, but he should have put them both away. Um, and McGoldrick then on the other side, uh, for Sheffield almost scored a really great goal off of a set piece. He thought that he scored it. It was off of a free kick. It was tapped to him. He turned like he was going to celebrate to score, but the Brighton defender made a, or Brighton keeper made an excellent save. Um, and then in the 39th minute, uh, Lundstrom receives a red card. He slides through the ball, hits the ball, but he hits the player high on the ankle in the follow through. It, it gets VAR and it's a red card. It, it's it, it was a red card. It's tough. Like I, I know when you hit the ball first, like we're used to that kind of being the the pass to get through. But he hits the ball with his lower leg and his upper leg is so high. He just goes right through the player. So could could have been a bad injury. I think it's it's a red card that makes sense. Um, but Sheffield is down, and Sheffield is sitting so deep and just trying to hit on the counter, and then they do. Bugle scores for Sheffield in the 63rd minute. Counterattack. Brighton just commit way too many numbers forward. McGoldrick finds acres of space out on the left and puts in an amazing ball to Bugle, who scores. Sheffield up 1-0. It's a huge result for them, and it it should have been 2-0 in the 84th minute. Ollie Burke is put in again. Um, tons of space. He's one-on-one, and he just puts it wide. He needs to, to have a few more of those to join the MSCs, but he's definitely... He's on his way. <laughs> he's on his way. <laughs> There's always room for one more at the Missing Sitters Club. <laughs> Not in the Missing Sitters Club this year. He has revoked his membership is Danny Welbeck. Danny Welbeck is yes. full Danny Welbeck. Because in the 87th minute, he scores an excellent, just a poacher's finish, great goal. The ball comes in off of a set piece. It gets, it, it bounces off a player, takes a deflection. He chests it down and one times it, just smashes it through the net. Um, excellent. He made a big difference right when he came on for Brighton. They looked a lot more threatening up front. Uh, and so it's 1-1. 
And then Welbeck almost scores again in the 95th. It gets deflected, and Jan Bosch for Brighton has another chance. His header hits the bar. You have to score that. Brighton unlucky not to get the three points. Their expected goals was 2.9 to Sheffield's one. Sheffield defending really well. Uh, red card, you know, it's it's tough. To get a point out of that game for them, it's, it's honestly... Massive. It's massive, yeah. It's big because... You went down to 10 men, and this is another team that's in the relegation fight. So, honestly, it's it's a, a an important result for Sheffield. But without that red card, you'd feel like Sheffield maybe had a chance for all three. Absolutely. I, I, I this all of this is reminding me. I'm thinking about where I, where how I had been feeling about my Blades and Brighton before earlier in the season it reminds me that we're coming about now to about halfway through we are we may need to revisit our predictions from earlier oh i to, shudder uh, to think about this but yes i think you're right <laughs> we might have to revisit um i wonder if if we might not be a little more correct honestly than than we when we first thought but regardless that brings us to our final game from the weekend arsenal one everton two um so this game, so my take on this game was that it felt it felt a bit muted. Uh, I don't really feel that either team played their best game, um, but I don't also feel like they played their worst game either. Um, Arsenal has been struggling. Uh, but this game, you know they they created a few opportunities. Um, they 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 had. I don't know. It's it felt decent. It didn't feel like it just an absolute, you know, uh, like it it wasn't just like falling apart right and left. Um, that said, they don't come away with the three points. They come away with the zero. So, not not a great uh, outcome all the same. Um, but both teams kind of come out playing kind of cautiously in possession. Um, it seemed like both teams kind of just working the ball in their back line a lot, not really looking to like exploit that space in. I especially saw this from Everton. Like they would win the ball, they'd have possession, and they'd come to half field and they would just never like they just they they took a lot of time before they would actually engage in the attack. Um and, and that was definitely something that, you know I I, I don't know. It, it seemed like it seemed like they were tentative and I was kind of curious to why. Um Unfortunately, there the first for Arsenal. The first goal comes in the twenty second minute. Um, it, it looks at first like it's going to be a goal for Dominic Calvert Lewin, but it ends up becoming back as an own goal for uh, against Rob Holding. Um, so Arsenal is kind of transitioning back to defense on the counter, but the buildup isn't super fast. Um, and then there's this movement from the left side of the field all the way across to the right, kind of uncontested, um, which was probably the biggest problem because when you're trying to transition back, you know, and then the ball switches from one side of the field to the other, that's the, it's kind of the hardest transition to make because you're trying to go backwards and you're trying to change direction. And it's very easy for the spacing there to kind of get out of line or to create opportunities for the other team. Um, so that goes kind of uncontested. And then Awobi gets the ball and makes a very nice cross into Dominic Calvert-Lewin, who kind of gets a flick. Um, but Rob Holding's leg catches the ball after the flick. And it looks like the ball probably would have gone wide. Um, but after it hits Holding, it, it, it takes it into the bottom left side. And, um, I mean, it's a nice goal. I mean, it obviously was not intended to go down the way it was, but I mean, it was it was pretty in its buildup. The cross was nice, and the Calvert Lewin flick was was nice, I guess. Um, although, like I said, it was probably a little bit inaccurate. Um, three minutes later, 
Niketia misses a sitter, and that was the goal. That was the opportunity that I thought was gonna was gonna put them back. Tierney makes this actually very nice run down the left hand side, gets a ball over the top, brings it kind of all the way to the end line to the touch line, and then kind of cuts it back. I mean, eyes in the back of his head because he's facing two defenders, cuts it back, and Niketia gets the ball with a lot of space inside the eighteen and. I think he might get caught a little bit in two minds here because there's all that space. So, you know, maybe take an extra touch, go closer. Um, but he kind of, he kind of elects to just, just hit it. Um, and he, he, he just hits it wide, you know, it's just it clearly not the shot he, he quite wanted to take. Um, and I, I think, you know, in retrospect, which is so hard in those situations, but I think driving a little closer to goal, kind of forcing players to make it, to, to, to try to stop him before taking the shot would have been in his favor. Mm-hmm. But again, you know, it's, it's hard to make those decisions. I kind of get, I kind of get that, 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 that's trickier than it looks. Uh, but that was an unfortunate miss. 33rd minute, um, uh, Arsenal gets one back. Maitland Niles is taken, uh, Taken down by is this is this the same Devious that we <laughs> that we talked about in last pod? But Davis uh, Davis is trying to clear the ball out <laughs> and just like hits Maitland Niles and it's a foul. Uh, it was not very it was not intentional and it was kind of just like a poor timing and he didn't see the you know but whatever it's a foul. Pepe Nicola Pepe comes up hits it in boom one one looks like they might be back kind of on the offensive or you know have a little bit more gas in the tank um and then in the 45th minute Yerry Mina scores a goal it's a corner on the left hand side and he gets actually a really nice header on it he meets it kind of at the front of the six like the front left front corner of the six and that's a tough angle to get a to get a solid head on you know accurately but he puts it first post with a lot of power. I mean, he, he wields almost the entire force of the ball from the corner, you know, doesn't really take much off of it and gets a very, very nice goal. Um, so that puts them up to one. Um, and then in the second half there, you know, that no one is able to score. Um, I think Arsenal kind of look better in the second half. Um, Everton kind of backs off. Arsenal's kind of get, get doing well at getting into these wide areas, like kind of, uh, you know, the wide areas beyond like the right and left hand side of the 18 and they're sending in crosses. Um, it's not a perfect play, but it definitely looks a little bit better from them. Um, and then David Louise has this one opportunity in the 53rd minute. He, there's like a corner and it's kind of bobbling around and he takes a shot like off, like down off the ground and it ends up hitting the crossbar on like the inside with a lot of spin. And honestly, like you could show me that replay over and over again and i would probably predict it going three different places like it was very hard to see where that was going to go but he hits the hits the sidebar and it goes out unfortunately no goal there um and then in the last few minutes of injury time arsenal have a few crosses like across the front of the goal that they just can't quite get a foot on um and unfortunately can't quite get the equalizer um i I didn't like I said. I didn't feel like this was Arsenal's worst game, um, and they were definitely, I think, lacking some a little bit of direction in their approach. I they they tend to press. I still don't always see that being very effective for them. It seems like it kind of leaves them vulnerable to the attack, and they don't tend to to win a ton of balls in the press. And even when they do, those always don't those don't always lead to more, unless it's a really bad mistake, like a, you know. And even then, we've seen. 
you know, those go unfinished as well. Um, and so I, I'm always a little struggle. I struggle a little bit to, to, to see what the value is there. But the biggest thing for me that I think has been consistent, but remains to be something I think they just need to address is what Manchester United was able to do better in this last game was that they were playing more quickly when they won the ball. Mm-hmm. Like when they won the ball, they were playing one, two and just getting into the box as quickly as possible. Arsenal struggles to do that. Um, some of their personnel just don't, they have bad habits, quote unquote, bad habits. Like a good example of that's Willian. Every time Willian gets the ball, he's never getting rid of it without taking like four touches. And that is not the high speed of play. Um, and then in other situations, it seems more of like an approach related thing. Like they win the ball and they don't feel the urgency to go forward. Like it's almost like they want to maintain possession, kind of walk it up a la kind of like Man City in some of the situations that they've had where they win the ball um, and kind of just walk it up. Um, but that, that speed and transition is to me the thing that that really kind of undermines their effectiveness. Um, and and I, I would I like to see them do more of that uh, or try to try to work on that in particular. But it was still a close game. And like I said, they had a few opportunities that really could have put this at least equal, if not put them ahead. Um, you know, and just to put one other point, you know, their expected goals in the end was above uh, that of Everton. And they come out with an expected goals of 1.25 and Everton with 0.66. Now, the thing is, you know, you've got to count the PK in that, which skews a little bit. But even without it, even without the PK, they still come out above. Um, although you'll notice that both of their expected goals in this game are fairly low. Um, so, you know, it, it was a little little cagey in some senses. I don't know if it was cagey exactly. It just they weren't quite able to get the finishes they were looking for. There's no image that better encapsulates what you're describing than just seeing Mohamed Elneny win the ball in midfield, look up, look upfield, and promptly turn around and cycle the ball to the back line. It's like Chaka, Ceballos, and Elneny, they, they don't pass the ball forward. There are players yeah. who pass the ball, they cycle the ball backwards. There, there's no progressive passing in the midfield for Arsenal from any of the central midfield players, except Thomas Partey, who the last time he played a full game for us is the last time Arsenal won a game in the Premier League. That was against Manchester United back in... It's almost been like 60 days since I've seen Arsenal win a game in the Prem. It's disgusting. But I... So... I wanted to kind of change gears and talk a little bit about Arteta because all the buzz now is about whether Arteta is going to be fired. Uh, Arsenal just lost 4-1 uh, in the Carabao Cup. Pretty embarrassing game against Manchester City. Um, so there's been chatter about him being fired. So I, I took a little bit of time to kind of write down what I view as the pros and cons of him as a manager right now at Arsenal. So... I wanted to list those out and then also just talk with you about what we think the club should do and, and what we think what we're making of Arteta. So pros, he's an Arsenal player. He played for the club. I think fans really like him for his time at the club. He, he worked really hard. He, he was a captain for us for some time. Goodwill um, as a former player. Uh, he won the FA Cup and the Community Shield in his first year. So you know, he beat a lot of big teams along the way, something that Arsenal struggled with historically, and that felt like a really strong end to the season, beating Liverpool for the League Cup and um, beating Chelsea for the FA, or sorry, beating Liverpool for the Community Shield and Chelsea for the FA Cup. Uh, last season, it also felt like we had 
and, and early this year too, had some real structure and a style of play. It felt like there there was uh, Arsenal conceding more pre- possession, playing a little bit more, kind of parked the bus, to be honest. And that was working really well, and our transitional play was working well. Um, he also brought in Partey and Gab- Gabrielle as two of his signings. So I think those two are excellent players. Gabrielle's been our player of the year, like without a doubt, um, barring that one red card mistake that he made. And Partey, like we haven't really seen, but the minutes we've seen have been good. So those are my pros. My cons list is a little bit longer. Um, <laughs> okay. In terms of personnel, he's frozen out Ozil, Gwenduzi, Socrates, and now Saliba, it looks like, too. William Saliba is a young center back Arsenal signed. He was on loan last season, and now he's back. The Ozil situation is really complicated. The Socrates situation, he's just kind of old, and like I'm not heartbroken about him getting frozen out. Guendouzi, it's concerning. He was a discipline problem last year. He's at Hertha Berlin on loan now, and he's like lighting it up. And it's like, we need a midfielder like that. We need like a bastard in the midfield who's going to transition and attack, and he's out in Germany. Um, Saliba's situation is really bad. He came in, his mother passed away. It's really tough. He's, you know, under a lot of emotional stress. He's a young kid. He's only 19 or 20. So, you know, a hard time for him. But he's not getting any minutes anywhere. He's not playing in stupid Europa League games. He's not playing in, like, any of these games. He should be getting some minutes with the first team somewhere. And now the chatter is that Liverpool are going to try to sign him on loan in in, in January. It's insane. We don't have a center back, and Liverpool wants to sign this guy. You have to play him. Like, Rob Holding scoring own goals, we don't need to see that shit. Like, put in the 20-year-old wonder kid from France. It's, that's, that, to me, is, like, the biggest black mark against him. And I think connected to that is just youth development has been poor. He's not playing our young players enough in meaningless games. We're playing stupid-ass Mustafi in a game against Manchester City that we're always going to lose. Like... Play someone else in that position. Play Saliba. Play Reese Nelson. Reese Nelson has played 69 minutes in the Premier League this season, and we're giving Willian chances. And Willian is one shot in the Premier League this season in all of his in all of his time. That's like the other part of this is the other players that he's brought in. He's brought in Willian, who might be an all-time terrible signing, and Alex Runnerson, this goalkeeper, who also might be an all-time terrible signing, who was horrific against Man City yesterday. And I think probably what is viewed by most people as his biggest mistake is that he rushed Thomas Partey back. And Partey got hurt again. He brought him back for the London Derby against Tottenham. And then Partey's hurt and is now out for weeks when we desperately need him. So um, getting a little fired up, as you can tell, listener talking about this. Uh, I feel like the issues with the club in terms of player recruitment and personnel that are there are not all his fault. That's previous management, previous, um, yeah, previous sporting directors who are bringing those players in. There's a lot of waste in the club. There are a lot of poor players who are there. That doesn't help, so I'm not blaming him for that. But that being said, he is picking the squad week in and week out, and he keeps picking these like players who need to go, who, who, who we need to move on from. Um, yeah. I, I Yeah, you know... So, you know, 
obviously I have no experience, you know, playing or sorry, coaching in a, for a team or in a league where, you know, I have so many different factors, um, contributing to like what I'm, what I'm doing, you know, the, the money, uh, that you have for new players to sign, you know, the contracts that you have to manage for the players you have. Um, and then all of, obviously, you know, you're going to have, some of the the culture itself from the players who have been there and the new players you bring in and I can't imagine all of that uh, you know well enough to probably speak to all of it but when I try to reduce the equation to like what do I think is going through his head where do I think he how do I think he's approaching this the way that I kind of feel about the trajectory of Mikel Arteta was that he came into this job like very excited to build something to rebuild Arsenal I think is like to rebuild them and to make them like a, a like kind of like a, a a very strong you know team that's going out and competing and winning um you know regularly like I think I think he was very excited to do that um and I think that he's kind of gotten almost caught in this idea of being really great and lost touch with the fact that there are maybe some things outside of his control that are going to prevent him from doing that as quickly as he might want. Like what I see sometimes is him trying to figure out a way to win this game today that under, that's like getting in the way of perhaps working on the same things you did last game or working on some players who might be in a, who might be really valuable to you in the future you know like when you think about youth development right one's the reason i don't play a young player who's promising because i think i need to win the game right now like i, I have to win this game right. and i don't think right if you're thinking i can't expect myself to win every game i need to be focusing on how i'm going to win in a sustainable way how i'm going to rebuild this then i think you would see some more consistency in the way you play, like you would be playing, you know, the same. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of you know workshopping that happens in the beginning when you're first trying to figure out what your go-to is. But then you need to start solidifying um, around who that is and how you're going to play. Um, and ideally, you want to mold that around the most, the most, the most you know tangible potential you have, whether that's because of youth or the length of a contract signing. You know. Um, and I think that's something that I feel like he's kind of lost touch with. Like he's, and, and, I, and I can see it happening because as you start to lose more of these games, that feeling of desperation, that feeling of like, I need to just get a win so I can substantiate what I want to do ends up undermining you. Um, maybe, you know, earlier this should have happened, but to kind of settle on like, I'm going to take, like my thinking is I'm going to take my youngest, highest potential players. I'm going to put them on the field and I'm going to try to rebuild that. Um, and that way, even if, uh, even if we're not winning, the people are going to see a team that's getting better every game that's developing, you know what I mean? And I'm going to have players that do what I want them to do because they know that they're kind of at the, you know, lower end of the totem pole and I'm giving them their opportunity like that. I think would have been a better vibe, a better like trajectory for his development at Arsenal. Um, but that's not really what I've seen so far. I 100% agree with you. I think if I was less emotional and, and upset about the state of Arsenal, <laughs> that would be my analysis. And the comp to me is Ralph Hasenhutl at Southampton. When he came in, they were really bad under him for a good stretch. Uh, they, they really struggled to get results. 
but he didn't break out of his system. He didn't break out of buying into youth in particular players. And, you know, now they're, they're competing for Europe, competing for top six, which is like crazy for Southampton to be doing. And I think that's a testament to like, yeah, like I, I'm, I'm thinking really deeply about the long term and the process. And, I, but I, I, I think you're totally right. Um, I, th- I think the question for, for me and for like all Arsenal supporters and the club at large is like, do you continue to back this manager or do you sack them and bring in someone new? And I think we're like controlling for all of the other managers that are out there or the managers who are not currently out there, like who's his replacement. Mm-hmm. Um, putting that question kind of aside, I do think like there is, there does become a breaking point in a season where like, you just need to bring in someone fresh and maybe like, yeah. like, like you're talking about now, like Arteta is just too far down this mental tunnel. The players are just, they've, they've, they've lost his, you know, yeah. they're not listening to him. They've lost trust in it. And you just kind of need the new manager bouts. And it's crazy to say, but uh, you know, Arsenal are in legit fear of relegation. I would say as things stand. Absolutely. I, I think I may mention this before, um, but in, in maybe it was in the, the live stream that we did or maybe it was in the previous pod, but I talked about this thing that you can do at halftime where you talk to your players and you tell them about this switch you're going to make, but you don't make it yet. And part of the, like I said, I think I mentioned there, but part of the reason why that can be really valuable is because your players have something to anchor onto. Like, well, there's always that one card up our sleeves. Like, they don't know how impactful it will be, and maybe you don't even have to do it. Maybe you end up playing the whole game and you never make that substitution and you never change to the other piece of, like, the other approach. But you have it there because it gives them that little bit of hope that if things do go badly, you can make that switch and they can feel that sense of, like, ah, we switched the other thing, so maybe we got a new, you know, new life. That's the kind of feeling you can get from changing, for example, a manager is like, yeah, you know, it's new, who knows what it's going to bring, but that just that potential can kind of breathe a little bit of life into it. And I'm no, I'm not probably not the best arbiter of where that line is to be drawn with a manager, um, but I, I definitely get the sense that he has gone a ways down that tunnel. And I would not be surprised if he's crossed that line. When you see players getting the amount of red cards that Arsenal's getting right now, that to me is pure frustration. It's players who are going out there are frustrated because maybe they can't even put their words to it, but it's probably a, a mixture of they don't know what they need to do to make the impact that they want to make. They're being, you know, they're they're embarrassed. They're being embarrassed, or they feel embarrassed about what's going on, um, and that lack of direction, it, it just, I mean, it can be very frustrating. And then it boils over, and next thing you know, you're you're getting into fights on the field. Um, yeah. And to me, that that is like the biggest sign that there could be a lot of fallout right now, a lot of like lack of trust, and that 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 period of goodwill that comes with like a new interaction have may have worn fairly thin um and i i i think that whatever direction arsenal does go whoever and whoever's taking taking charge there i think you really have to approach this um with the full sense of rebuild like what we need to do is forget about the idea of being top six or winning the league we need to just 
put put that aside. Put that on like a, a five-year plan, right? A plan that you never actually pursue, right? <laughs> By the next year, you have a new five-year plan. Like put that somewhere that makes you feel like, okay, we're not forgetting about it. But right now, what are we doing? And that's we need to not be relegated. We need to figure out who our starting 11 are and what our style of play is. And we need to do that every single game. And if I'm going to do it right now, given that I need to not be relegated, I'm going to pick something conservative. I'm going to pick something conservative where we're drawing or winning. Like we're never losing a game. Um, and and then work from there into something more. Um, I, that, that's what I think you need to do. I think that, I, I think that he just has whole, held on to this idea of greatness and like all of the potential for too long. You know, he's just, he wants to do too much too quickly. Um, and honestly, I get the feeling and I, I mean, I don't know what goes on his head, but I think working with Pep Guardiola for a while and being his assistant, I think it probably puts a lot of, it's a, is it really probably, uh, it's probably a very, significant lens, right? It's probably really changes the way that he sees the possibilities because he sees Pep with all this money and all these players and the way that he approaches this game, which is probably very like philosophical and theoretical. And he's not exactly, he's not in that environment. He's in a crunch time environment where results are not only a matter for the sake of winning um, to like, but just to stay, you know, relevant. Um, that is kind of where he's at. And, you know, the philosophical, more theoretical components of what good soccer is, that can wait until you have something that's keeping you afloat. Um, That's my read on it, at least. I think you're right. And unfortunately, if history is any any guide, what will probably happen is Arsenal will buy a bunch of has-been players for way too much money and put them on absurd wages over the winter break. That would be my guess. Um... I, I wanted to just close out and say, Father Wenger, forgive us for all of our sins, for screaming Wenger out, for complaining about you. You don't know what you have until it's gone. And that has never been more true than thinking about the tenure of Arsene Wenger um, at Arsenal. I, I can't believe that this fan base ever complained about having him um, and the state of the club at this moment. So, Father Wenger, please, please forgive us for our sins. Um, and listener, please stick around because we are going to be right back to close out with some predictions. All right, welcome back, listener. Thank you for sticking around. We are going to wrap up with some predictions. So, let's start with uh, guaranteed three points, Rodrigo. We got a bunch of games on Boxing Day, six matches on Boxing Day. ton of fun. But this weekend, yeah, where are you seeing the guaranteed three points? Guaranteed three points. So, I, you know, there's definitely a variety of games here that we could probably consider lopsided to the point of a guaranteed three. But I want to be controversial. I want hot takes. We're going into, yes. uh, you know, this nice Boxing Day uh, avalanche of games. Guaranteed three Leicester, Manchester United. Leicester is going to go in and spank Manchester United. Mm. Um, Leicester is uh, disciplined, extremely disciplined. Manchester United is definitely playing better, um, but I do not think they have the firepower to take down a deeper-sitting Leicester, and Leicester is going to run riot on that defense on the counter. Um, Prove me wrong, please, right? Here I am. But uh, I think that's going to be the guaranteed three. I like that. 
pick. I like that pick. I'm also going to go with maybe kind of a hot take here. I'm going to say Burnley is going to get a result against Leeds. This is not quite saying three points. I could see them winning this game. I could also see them getting a draw against Leeds. I just feel like Burnley is kind of getting their swagger back in the way that they want to play, like looking for those mistakes, hitting on transition. They're they're getting back into their rhythm. And if any team makes mistakes in, in possession in the middle of the field, it's Leeds United. So um, and, and just picture Luke Ayling trying to defend Ashley Barnes. Ugh. So uh, I think <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think Burnley is going to get um, they're going to get a result against Leeds. Maybe not three points. They're going to get a result. Um, Good deal. Upset of the week. What do you What do you see? Upset. Upset of the week. Well, there's definitely a few on here that I'd love to see happen. Um, but I think my pick is going to be Wolves Tottenham. Uh, I think Wolves. Like uh, we've said this uh, how many times now? But I, Wolves. I'm you know I'm kind of picking out of the magician's hat. Who knows what's going to come out? But I have a feeling that they could be a difficult opponent for Tottenham um, depending on how they choose to play and in a weird way I also kind of feel like they're due I know that means nothing but you know the superstitions around uh, you know it, or bobbling around in my head are telling me that Wolves are due for like a, a big game um, I could see maybe they throw Triore back on the field he has like a, a great game comes out with a brace but I think I think the underdog there is definitely Wolves but I think that might be the the victory of the of the weekend. My underdog, if Brighton starts Danny Welbeck, I think that Brighton has a good chance against West Ham on the weekend. I think West Ham's strength is playing against teams with really good central midfielders to try to build out of that. Brighton tries to play in the wings a lot more, and I think that that can actually cause West Ham some trouble. Um, And then, yeah, finding Danny Welbeck on some good form in the middle of the field. I think Brighton could, could bring it to West Ham, and this would be... That would be a huge result for them. Um, Massive. Definitely an underdog. All right. Game of the week. Uh, Leicester-Manchester United is a huge game, um, both in terms of top four, like place, um, but also in terms of of form. Manchester United has been on a blazing hot form. So I think that's a game. It's the first game of the weekend, Boxing Day, early morning. That's the game I'm feeling the most excited about. What about you? Oh, you could. I mean, man, that's got to be. I mean, that is the game of the weekend. It's the game uh, for Boxing Day. It's the first game, so it's on at four thirty a.m., which is or my time. Brutal. So I got to get up for it though, because that's going to be the one. Um, I do. I agree. I think it's game of the week. I think you know there are other games that would be interesting. I mean, that are there's plenty of games that'll be interesting, but games that are probably also going to be close. I think Wolves Tottenham will be close. Um, I don't know that much else will be super close here. I mean, you never know. Maybe Newcastle will pull one over on Man City, but I kind of doubt it. <laughs> um, I think. You know, we we don't mention Arsenal-Chelsea. I mean, in the past, I think that would have been a big game, but Chelsea is looking pretty solid right now. Arsenal struggling. I don't think that's going to be game of the week. Agreed. Leicester Man United, but I'm telling you right now, I, I'm i feeling better about Manchester United. Like, I have a lot more respect for the way that I've been seeing them play, and I don't and I don't mean this in disrespect to, like, their improvement. Um, but, you know, this isn't the award. You know, you don't get an award for most improved when it comes to this game on Saturday. Um, and I think Leicester just has the discipline that Manchester United is only starting to cultivate, yeah. uh, like, right now. So, excited. Excited, too. And um, if you're celebrating, listener, we hope you have a great Christmas. Um, if you are not, we hope, listener, you have a great break. 
And um, yeah, we'll look forward to closing out 2020. Thank the Lord, closing it out next week and hopefully talking about some great games. Rodrigo, it's always a pleasure to talk with you, man. Um, Hope you have a great holiday. Hope you have a nice break, able to spend some good time with family. Absolutely. Thank you again and looking forward to talking about next week's games.